0: The difference between um, court jesters and bards and raconteurs and all the different shades of grey of meaning that come towards describing male poets of a certain age who well, do it a certain way.
1: The role of the fool, you know, the Shakespearean fool. I the totally, of Truth.
0: yeah, I totally know this. This is also part of the job
1: description. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a literary podcast that is a project of the Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. Today, I have got the one, the only New Zealand's premier.
0: Now you're talking. <laughs> New Zealand's New Zealand's <laughs> premier, premier coffee premier drinking, premier college.
1: coffee drinking, and uh, street wandering, Lordy. handmade book making, keeping us all honest. David Merritt.
0: Hello everybody.
1: He's sucking flat white off his thumb as we speak. (laughs) Welcome David, it's such a pleasure to have you back in the shop. Thank you
0: for having me back in your lovely bookshop.
1: Mm. And you're going to start by reading us something.
0: Yes, a cherry poem, this one's called How Death Works, number three. In a paddock in the far north, the phone rings and suddenly it's death. People are there one minute and then they are gone the next. You see them later in an open casket before they go to get cremated. They look cold yet somehow still alive, you know, still here. So you spend time and you talk a little, sharing some cigarettes and some fine booze and some strong pot. The doctors, well they told them to stop all these things ages ago but now they're dead. Seems like this little point them quitting. Things are what they are. We are mortally flawed to decay with age, to ruinate, and eventually just wear out sooner or later. Our friends, our family, and our mates, they will all go this way. Either headlong, headfirst, or hell-bent, or with some small and tentative and Timid shuffles. I roughly now know my own mortal path, in which direction it lies, how far into this uncertain future it now stretches, and all I want is some love and some happiness and some fucking peace until this waiting game called life is over. Full stop. Palm ends, full stop.
1: Palm ends, full stop. <coughs> It's hard reading so,
0: poems about death at eight thirty on a, on the morning, isn't on, it?
1: Well, at least it's sunny. At here. least it's sunny. It, it, yeah. it it, and we've got black. Well, I've got black coffee, and you've uh, got sweet milky coffee. I have. So we've got something to hold us to this difficult world. <laughs> yeah. So I've got some questions you have, here. Yeah. But actually, let's just talk about. Um. The craft of your poetry for a moment, and I'll just tell a little story, which is that many, many years ago, 2001 perhaps, maybe later than that. Year three
0: of my first five-year plan.
1: Yes, year three of the first five-year plan. um, All the fields had been planted and the steel was being Uh, made. I encountered you outside... Uh, St Kevin's Arcade and you gave me one of your uh, yeah. um, books and I, I no, it must have been later than that, no, it must have been 2008 or nine oh, yeah. because I was working on cyber security and you yep. gave me a book about I, geek, I give you a geek prayer? You did, ah. you did, you gave me a cyber security poem and how I thought, funny. oh my god like, I've met a
0: cyber security poem. these don't exist very often That's
1: right, and and yeah. how often do two, two cyber security poets yeah. meet each yeah, other for sure. but we didn't really know it then and I looked at it and your poetry fascinates me so much and that poem has this quality. It's so blunt and so honest and job, yet these are
0: job descriptions, aren't they? They well Be blunt not, and honest if you can at times.
1: They're not for all poets, right? No, and no, you they're not. and my husband, who's a, a very good reader of poetry, picked up some of your books and he looked at them for a little while and then he said, There is a lot more to these <laughs> than you first realise, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So just talk to me about what you're doing there.
0: Uh, ten, ten years ago, I'm a nervous breakdown, midlife crisis, former academic, living in a shack in the corner of a paddock, 60 k's from anything. I don't have any electricity, and I have 23 hens and nine or ten Land 23
1: Rovers. Twenty-three hens keeps a man busy.
0: Oh, well, you know, they were my best friends for about three years, those hens. I... I when I left, when it, by the time I... I mean, I was burnt out. I'd been on a computer for so long at that point, you know, 20 years of 15 or 20 hours a day. And I'd seen things go from, like, mm, uh, DOS to desktop publishing through to web and then everything else that's come along since. And, and, and I, did, I worked in the industry... You can't see this, listeners, but my fingers are opening and closing some quotation marks because it's not necessarily an industry. It's more like a cavalry of cowboys at times. But anyway, I was working in the industry, and I thought, hmm, I don't have any cultural or theoretical knowledge about the people that work in this industry with me. And that's like people who make web pages, write software, hardware engineers who make the... PCs or the laptop Mac laptops or the iPods all those things so I went back to university and and I picked up the cultural theory about geeks because I'd been a cyberpunk reader all my life so I knew a lot about how the science fiction writers in particular had portrayed geeks computer technology and into the pretty much the future that we live in nowadays So, when I went out to the country, it was a big shock. I went from a very highly digital, electrified existence into one without any of those things, you know. The hens were my TV. Yeah. So, I'd always been a poet from from when I was in my mid-twenties in Dunedin and I drifted in and out of writing poetry. I did it very seriously for about 10 or 15 years, but then the computers came along and they like snapped me from poetry and got me into the world of design and publishing. The web came along, and that was even more fascinating. So it was a hiatus out in the Wop Wops. It really was. I had to learn to like my own company again, and I had to work out a way in which I could... I mean, I thought I was rehabbing myself. I thought I was going to cure myself of whatever sadness... Cure yourself of Sadness yourself. or melancholy. It's right. There's no cure. You are what you are, and you'd just better cope and hope that you're going to over time develop into a better version of yourself. I'm an old dog now, and I've got, I would i would say I've only got a limited number of new tricks to present to the world, but I'm amazed that I've got any new tricks at all. So I, I at that point I'm on a subsistence level, I'm on a wins benefit, I'm taking sacks of horseshit into the Whanganui market to sell for like five bucks each, uh, we're trying to um, sell them. So
1: you've been a horseshit merchant for a while then? Yes,
0: yeah, well, you know, no difference. We, we started, what was it, the Mangamahu Bum Nut Company, where we took eggs in and, you know, sold the eggs every week and stuff like that. And then, of course, um, fatally, I got asked to go on tour of musicians, fatally.
1: Which musicians were these? It was these?
0: a Carpeti Coast group called the Curbside Cabaret. And they were like just improv. They had beautiful songs, they had like saxophones, traditional musical instruments, but they had like larger than life characters. And I was their opening poet. And on the first day of the tour, they said, Well, where's your merchandise, old man? You know, and I thought, Hello, Uh, you're not going to, there's no money in this, they said, You know, you have to make your own money as we go on tour. And I just got this rubber stamp alphabet set, I had a really old crap laptop with me. And I could somehow use both the stamp pad set and the crap old Mac laptop to make a book. You know, I'd stamp out the cover of the book, and I'd use the Mac to make the PDF, staple that inside. You know, first night I did this, I made forty-two dollars. It's like, wow, I can make a living out of this, and it's just grown from that. To and, and and part of it's a rejection of everything that I had been told what I should do. People are full of advice what you should do. But sometimes the best thing to do is just to look at the lives of other writers or poets in particular whose lives you respect or whose work you think is fantastic or whatever and get a grasp on how miserable and wretched their lives could have, might have been or were or whatever and what were the chance and lucky things that happened to them. We're all going to grow old, you know. We're all going to grow old, 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 into old poets. And so it's important to work out, when you're a young poet in particular, how do I get from being this young, brimming with things, 26-year-old kid, to this elderly, mature, peak of your career, old poet, without becoming a drunk or only doing shows for the exclusive literary festival end of the market or ending up at academic. So well, there's not many role models, it's the Sam Hunt business model. Now I'm struggling. Very few poets take the leap to try and make their work into a full-time job and then assess how their career is doing on the basis of how well they're doing in their full-time job. I've always treated it as a, an eight hour day thing, just like everybody else should do with, you know, with their work so i wanted to become my own publisher and i wanted to become my own retailer i wanted to become my own marketing person i wanted to drive the forklift in the warehouse i wanted to do the spreadsheet i wanted to do the cash flow projections the swot analysis the five-year plan and write the poems oh this is a lot of shit to go on but this is the nature of the new world when i started writing poems we just wrote them with pens and bits of paper, we typed them up on a typewriter and the job was tidy. Off they went to a publisher. But now, you know, the computer has changed everything. We can all, we can be multinational publishers. We can have many, many, many books to our name just by clicking a few things on the desktop.
1: And yet you've chosen the exact opposite. The balance, it was the balance. The exact opposite it was approach. The, it was
0: the balance. I knew that if I just sat there and churned out PDFs and InDesign, I'm no different than everybody else. The world is going to hell and every individual has a small responsibility to try and slow that process down and if we're possible, to halt it and make it do a U-turn. And unless we do things at a personal level, nothing much is going to change. So I thought, okay, I don't want my books mass-produced in a Southeast Asia tiger economy and come back here in a big box and then go to the nine bookshops which sell poetry up and down the country. I don't need a publisher. I don't hardly need a retailer. you know. I wanted to upcycle things. I wanted to live off the waste waste chain of established publishing. And I thought, well, what's the what's the worst thing in publishing? And everybody said to me, the worst thing in publishing, David, is the Reader's Digest condensed book.
1: <coughs> they're,
0: they're terrible things, Lussie.
1: I used to read them. When we I all visited did. my grandparents. Of course. They had a big shelf of them yeah. and, and I absolutely adored them. Yeah. But can you say for our readers uh, our readers our listeners mm. can you just explain to our listeners exactly what how you do what you do at the moment? How all does right. it work? Okay. And this is copyright, everyone. It's, is not though. it's not though. This is David's business model. I've,
0: honestly, I've been waiting for maybe five years now to see other poets or writers with gumption to do something similar.
1: And Acolytes. Well,
0: well, um, it's just a, it's just going to be an emergent business model. People sit around on the side of the road and they make shit, like like we're in you know Bangalore mm. or downtown Delhi or whatever, you know. Beijing country needs to be a lot more third world in its thinking instead of uh, moribund first world you know oh, you can't do that whatever what are we talking about
1: so how does it work what do you actually do
0: uh, i'd go to an op shop i would go to the book section i'd scan the shelves of the, of the op shop book section for any readers digest condensed books that they had if they had five i'd get the five i'd go to the counter i'd say i'll give you a dollar each for these five books and they go fine Of those five books, I'd go to the paper recycling around the corner. I'd rip the guts out of the books and keep the covers. I then cut those covers in half and staple a spine down one side, and then I get a rubber stamp pad alphabet set, and I laboriously hand-print a title of the poem onto the cover of said Reader's Digest upcycled cover thing. And then I get a glue stick. It's like, whoa, high-tech, glue stick. And I glue a thing in the front left-hand corner that says my name, copy left postal address, email address, and on the other side I glue stick in an A3 sheet of paper which has a single sheet poem on it which has been laboriously folded up into something that pulls down and folds up and whatever. Um, Tinkerfoil. foil. Thank you. That's a good word. I had to look that up in the dictionary. And so, yeah, I make them. And when I started off, I thought, oh, I'll make high-end visual artist gallery prints of my poems on expensive flash paper and I'll sell them you know, for thousands of dollars and well, that seemed really stupid I thought no no don't do this make cheap things efficiently and sell lots of them eventually and that's pretty much how it's working out I, I make a lot more of them now than I did even five years ago.
1: And what's changed then so how have you built that and who buys them? I mean yeah, um, I buy them I love them, we, who else buys them?
0: Oh uh, uh, I think people quite often are intimidated by poetry collections, you know. They don't want to read 50 poems. They only want to read one, two, three, and they want to read a poem that resonates straight away with them. And that resonance comes sometimes from their selection process when they pick up one poem out of the 30 that's on the table before them. Their hand goes to one poem straight away. They pick that one up, and quite often that's the one that they'll buy or you know, they'll, they'll get. So there's all that. I mean, I, th- there's a, I mean, you're right, there's a lot going on. It's not just how the books are made and all that, it's how the poetry is read to an audience or performed in a side of a show or how the poet can now have the poems represent him or her without being at the poetry reading as well. And it's the old story, you know, you, you stick at something, you, you would hope, like I said earlier, over time that you would get better at what you're doing. Or people would recognise you as doing something unique, perhaps. And it might have taken me a bit longer for, for people to work it out. But I think a lot of people out there think, oh, gosh, he's doing something quite... we haven't Nobody else does this. And I, I really did study the business model for poets really long and hard and just decided don't do anything that anybody else does do it your own way, and do it in a way that's absolutely back to front, you know, inside out, wrong way round.
1: He keeps thumping the table, listeners, with his with his excitement. He should put his coffee
0: cup in his it, left hand. That's there right. You'll get back these little that. thumps in your ears. How, how am I doing? I'm talking. you You're doing, right. you're doing okay, amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: This is absolutely fantastic. So I want to go back go to off. when you started to write poetry in your twenties. In
0: 1986 in
1: Dunedin. In 1986 in Dunedin. So mm. do you remember? The first poem, or do you remember what brought you first?
0: no, but to
1: make a poem?
0: No uh, well I got on the train to go from Auckland to Dunedin specifically to become a poet and that you know and that was it was a conscious choice to move away from working inside of the music industry, which i had done up until that point and and to look after my own creativity, not other people's. And also to work in a more collaborative and cooperative way with other artists, and Dunedin was like just just the perfect place at the time.
1: It's very beautiful down there, isn't it? Very I've beautiful. Lived there for a short time. Yeah,
0: and you can live there for cheap on bugger all money. And there's a constant influx of new, interesting people coming in. You know, young university students. The students have become trapped by the beauty of Dunedin, become academics at the university, or become artists with practising careers. And there's all that music as well. I went there because I had a lot of mates there and the rent, rent was cheap and I knew that cold weather would sharpen your brain. And that's about all I knew when I got there.
1: And, and poetry, what is, what, why was it poetry?
0: Because perversely I thought the poetry... Yeah, anybody can write short stories in this country, we'll applaud you and give you the Nobel laureate's prize for short story writing. It's very hard for poets. And so perversely I drifted towards poetry thinking, okay, this is the hardest career in literature in New Zealand to be a poet, particularly a full-time one.
1: The hardest possible uh, path.
0: And if, if you can get good at New Zealand, my God, imagine how great you're going to be for the rest of the bloody world. So there's that adage as well. You you get good in your own home country, but by the time you go overseas, you you should be good enough for overseas.
1: And what – so I'm going to keep pressing on mm. this, David. What go is on. it in you that is – has a desire to do something creative, or what? What's the I? For me, I have what I call the poetry yeah. itch, where yeah. I suddenly realise <laughs> that this thing needs to be Scratched. written down. Yeah, you know. But what is it for you?
0: Part of it is, I think, I think poets at the moment have an unexplored part of the job description, as far as being social conscience instigators of of. Change inside of societies, or even just simple documentors of the great unraveling which we're going through. So great unraveling. Well, it is a great unraveling. Oh, unra- that's a wonderful it phrase. Is the, it is the great. It's like when, for ten years sitting on K Road, I have watched the fabric of our society unravel before my very eyes, and that's from having a fixed vantage point for the last ten years to watch the change, and I'm, that was a conscious decision. Don't, don't change your vantage point. Stay where you know if if and this was a conscious decision as well. I could have chased things around and I do chase obviously because there's certain places up and down the country where you have to be at a certain time of the of the year. But mostly, if I'm in Auckland, I'm just going to sit in one place, K Road. And then if you want to find me, well, it's easy. I'm there. If I'm not there, well, it's like let's play the Carmen Miranda game. Where is David Merritt? Or send you know the I mean. Where in the world is
1: Where in the World is Carmen, is Carmen San, San Diego San Diego. Yes, I yeah. remember. I'd that be wearing
0: day a GPS well. bracelet around my ankle and people be tracking me as I go from the Oh, he's outside the art gallery. Oh no no, he's moving down to Lower Queen Street. Oh he's down at the silo park now.
1: There's a repetitive movement. He must be Stapled. Correct. Or something. Or
0: his vital signs you know, he's calm at the moment.
1: <laughs> oh goodness. Um
0: so I, tell me, my parents book. were my parents were Marxists. This also will explain. Oh, yes. My parents were my parents were working class Yorkshire Marxists, and a little bit of their belief system did rub off on me, and I had a formative experience as a kid, where I caught the bus from Otar to Auckland Boys Grammar every day for three years. I was an out-of-zone scholarship. You know, give, give the bright, give the bright, give the bright fat kid with long hair a place at our school. And so I caught that bus every year. That's what got me reading, you know, more and more complicated books. And it's what taught me a lot about class consciousness, you know, roles of poets in society, uh, the difference between um, court jesters and bards and raconteurs and all the different shades of grey of meaning that come towards describing male poets of a certain age who oh, do it a certain way.
1: The role of the fool, you know, the Shakespearean fool, I the totally, of truth.
0: Yeah, I totally know this. This is also part of the job description.
1: So talk to me a little bit about your parents then. When did they come here and why? Um,
0: 59. Uh, they immigrated on a boat, the Fair Sky. They were the last of the five-pound palms who went from England. And they went via Australia. Uh, I was born in Wollongong. And then we came here when I was four because mum hated the snakes and the spiders and the weather in Australia in particular. So we had a dad worked at a succession of very dreary, small New Zealand towns in the central North Island that did dairy factories or cheese or casein or milk powder or hydroelectric. he He was a boilermaker fitter, so he was the maintenance engineer or the engineer who kept the factories going
1: hard to be more classically working class than yep. make a
0: maker fitter. Correct. And coal miners stretching back in your ancestry, you know, 10 Gosh. generations. And so, your mother? My, my mother tried for four years to be a carpet mender, which was a very highly specialised job in Yorkshire where when the carpets would be made on the looms, she was behind a bank of bright lights that showed you any flaws or imperfections in the carpet weave. And then she would be with n- nimble fingers fixing you know the weave by hand and that was her job and she she retrained as a pharmacist assistant when she came out but essentially both parents worked nine to five you know eight to i didn't see dad for months at times he just worked strange shifts all the time and both of them worked all all the time so we always lived in state houses we moved around continuously dad got punched out at work because he was unpopular and so it was very unsettling and I think that's part, that's part of my wonder lust now for travel so much is because I spent so much. We worked out, we moved every eight months God. from age four to, I
1: think, 17. Mm. And brothers and sisters? Or just Alan, you?
0: I've got my brother Alan, he's uh, 12 years older. My sister Julia, she's eight years older. I'm the youngest. And I've got a dead sister, uh, Hazel, who died as a result of the unfortunate experiment at the National Women's Hospital. Oh, my goodness. She was an untreated, untreated cervical cancer uh, person, woman. Goodness. Mm. Very sad that was in the early 80s. These how
1: awful. Yeah. And are you in touch with your siblings?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, I see. If I could, I'd see them both more often. But they both live in Auckland. My mum's still alive. She's in her early 90s. So, uh, you know, I see, try and see mum... My sister sees her my mum every day. My brother sees my mum every now and again or every week or whatever.
1: Gosh, families, mm, eh?
0: Families, eh? And
1: coal miners stretching <laughs> all the way back.
0: And I deliberately black-sheeped myself from some of some of the aspects of my family that I found to be too constrictive or too restraining or too, you know, whatever the word is you want to use. And
1: what do they think of you now, David?
0: They're proud of me now. <laughs> but my father, who died recently, he he couldn't get his head around it. He, I, I think he never forgave me for deserting my class roots because he equated poets with, you know, laudanum taking Byron and Shelley and... And yet or,
1: he sent you to Auckland um, Grammar. Well, it was Grammar.
0: purely f- luck. You know, it was purely luck. I could have gone to Otahoo, could have gone to Hillary College, whatever, you know. It was pure luck. And the bus the bus journey, you know, for an hour, each, an hour in the morning, an hour at night. I read books at the back of this bus and try not to get beaten up. It's as simple as that.
1: What sticks with you particularly that you read on those bus journeys?
0: Biggles. <laughs> Funnily enough, Biggles. It started off as a twelve-year-old kid reading Biggles, and I read every Biggles. I read it not just because it was like you know war story bullshit. It was like geo British geopolitical colonial, you know intentions explained. It was geography and history, at, at the same time. Yeah. And then it was other things, you know, like you, you, you move on, you, Lord of the Rings comes next after Biggles or whatever. And before you know it, you're reading Chariots of the Gods, trying to get your head around the concept of alien civilizations.
1: Isn't it amazing? Here we are sitting in this room full of books in the open book. You know. I'm sure
0: there'll be books about alien civilizations somewhere oh, in here. Oh, any of them, yeah. you
1: know, any yeah. of them. And yes, these things we read early in our lives that stick with us. What mm. about the first poetry that you remember really speaking to you?
0: My sister took me to a Baxter reading. Ah, well. he t- She did when I was like a ten-year-old, eleven-year-old kid, or something. I, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. McLaurin Hall, something Catholic. One of the Catholic halls at Auckland Uni. It was like 1970, 71, 72, just before he died. And and I mean, that was mind-boggling. I didn't know what to make of that. You know, I don't well, think what I don't did think he, I what did I don't think read? I I don't know. I don't remember. but I don't think I enjoyed myself at all. I thought, what the? Because like most people. Baxter was not very popular when he was alive. Venerated after his death, sure, but when he was alive, significant population, maybe 60% of conservative hellfire brimstone, New Zealand, hated and despised him with a passion. He was like a long-haired, drug-taking, commie radical scum. Not premier icon. All of that. He got tarred with so many brushes by Conservative New Zealand. Mm. And, you know, some of that tar stuck. And it was not until after his death, and in some cases, many generations, many decades after his death, that the tar's taken off completely. The, the literary historians will all have a crack at him and try and work it out.
1: My mother went to Jerusalem, mm. went up the river to Haru Harama to well, stay with him a few yep. times. You know, she was a yep. she was a young hippie. I met Peter
0: days. Olds when he was um, when I was a very young poet. I met Peter Olds who'd done a similar thing on you know, gone to Jerusalem sat around as a hippie, became a poet in his own right after Baxter's death. And they were always interesting to talk to. What went on? What was the ethos about him doing that? And and can something similar to that be done again?
1: There's an amazing, you know, in the documentary about him, there's an amazing um, bit with Jackie Sturm, his wife, of course, saying there he was wandering up and down the country Mm. and here in his cupboard... Were several good suits and pairs of shoes.
0: But he was always barefoot and yeah. not in very good suits, wasn't he?
1: And I think about there's an incredibly beautiful poem um, that he's written for her when he's at Jerusalem. Mm. And, you know, it says, uh, This is my life, simple and plain as stone or something. The only thing that makes it less good, Henny, is that you are not here beside me. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, yeah. a, it's an absolutely incredible, beautiful poem. Yeah. One of my favourite poems. But then I think of her point of view as well. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, well. Yeah. Oh.
0: It was not easy for her. God, no. No.
1: God, no. So, David, mm. if you weren't a poet now, what would have happened to you or what would you be? I
0: would have pursued the high-end cultural theory of geeks. I'd be working for Google. It'd be as simple as that. I'd be working for Apple or Google. I would have taken it to that, you know. I would have got my doctorate in whatever it was that I was trying to get a doctorate in and gone to work with them as a high-end cultural theorist about how to make their geeks more productive and happy or more secure in their dealings with code on the internet or whatever, whatever geeks or people who work of geek culture need to be told about how they can improve what they're doing. I mean, I was attracted to open source. I mean, you've got to admit, I was just at the right place at the right time at several key points in my life. I had an email address really young, and so this is way before the web. So I was fascinated by digital culture. When I saw a computer, I knew this is such a vital tool for writers. And when I saw desktop publishing, the PostScript printer, you know, I said, well, of course this is what I of course this is what I'm going to follow through because it's incredibly important. So, yeah. I don't even remember the question. Look I'm just talking willy nilly.
1: No, you're doing an incredible I'm just talking job willy-nilly, this, everybody. Is, this is this is a magical this is gonna be a magical podcast. <laughs> All right, we've got a couple of, of tricksy questions yep. here. What's your deepest regret?
0: Oh, I've got several ex marriages that I really looking back on them wish that they weren't ex marriages. I regret the fact that my first dog can't live forever. And I didn't get DNA off him to reclone him later. You know, like I'd like to reclone reclone my dog right now from
1: nineteen
0: eighty. What was his name? Gonzo. Gonzo. Yeah, or Osnog, if you <laughs> went Gonzo backwards. Yeah, he was a great dog. So, the, what do they say? There's an old saying. Oh, Sorry, there's an old saying that um, what is it? Depression is sadness about the past, and anxiety is worries. About Sadness the future, about the future, yeah. And so, regrets—you always have regrets about things from the past because it's hind- regret is one of those emotions which is a hindsight emotion. You don't even know you're going to feel the regret until years later when you get the perspective to think, "Oh man, I mucked that up. I'm really sorry, whatever." So, it's a powerful emotion because regret's one of those few emotions that teaches you not to be regretful. How to do better next How to time. do better next time. All my life, I knew that I was not going to be a very good poet until I was old. I knew that, and that's how I wanted my career to be. In fact, I had a friend, Leah Poulter, who's a playwright. She was a playwright in Dunedin, and she rang me up one morning. I'd, I'd been writing for about a year. I'd put out one little chapbook of crap. She rang up, she said... I had a dream about you last night. It was like, you're destined to be a great poet, but you're not going to get anywhere until you're in your 50s. And even then, they're going to hate you. But young people will like you, so it's all going to be good. (laughs) And that was basically her dream. And it really made an impression on me. I thought, she's right. I am like a wine in a cellar. I might be a nice vintage right now, circa 1987 or 88, but my proof is a vintage. Is not until two thousand and eighteen, or whatever. It's thirty. It's thirty or it's thirty or forty years in the future, or whatever, from this point when you've when life has given you the events that shape you as a poet.
1: And you should see him now, listeners. He's a little dusty, like a fine (laughs) wine, but he drinks very well.
0: (laughs) Drinks. My mother. My mother leaned into me when I was thirteen, and she said, "Don't drink. Don't drink like your brother." She said. And I, did you? No. Well, I did, no, of course. i ignored my mother completely until I was about 20 and drank like everybody else. But by 20, I realised, man, whew, alcoholic gene is enormous in my family. Mm. If I keep down this road, I will be a hapless drunk by the time I'm in my late 30s. you know. And this is the problem that a lot of poets, writers, singer-songwriters, painters, whatever, creatives go through, that they experience emotions which are unsettling for them and they will drink to deaden it. Social workers the same, you know, journalists were the same. These are occupations which had a reputation for hard drinking because they were dealing with really tragic events on a day-to-day basis and needed to anesthetize themselves to keep on doing the job without you know, to desensitize themselves enough to keep on doing the job. And there's a little bit of about that with poetry. You know, you do observe a lot of really shitty things. You are a canary in a mineshaft of doom. You Part of the job description says you will watch the great unravelling. Try not to turn to the bottle, you know. Yet. Yet.
1: So Yet. then, David, what is your dearest wish?
0: That's a tough one.
1: Isn't it? Yeah. I don't know what my answer to this is. I would
0: like to find the balance between earning an income and not earning too much income. And I'd like to find the balance between being happy and being melancholy or sad. And I'd certainly like to probably experience as I get older more joy. Yeah, that. That's probably my experience more joy. More joy. Yeah.
1: Maybe that is also my dearest wish.
0: I think I think you can only write a certain number of poems around a certain theme or a certain Recurring event or whatever That comes in your life Or things that you Constantly see or observe And so you you know By the time you're 50 You've written those poems You've written them five times You've put them out of four different books And so those poems have a certain deri- a, a certain amount of redundancy You don't go back to the scab And keep picking it Because that's what it is When you rewrite a poem Or go back to an event from the past And write a poem about it You're picking at an emotional scab To see if it's still bleeding and that's a useful tactic for poets and writers in general. We all do this, but ugh, I don't want to go back and pick at scabs. So, I, you know, I want to heal some of my uh, gaping wounds and be a little bit more pleased about things.
1: Have you read much uh, Cesla Milosh? No. Oh, absolutely no. amazing. See, I'm like oh. a
0: naive. I'm like a naive poet. I've read. Obviously, I've read poetry, but I haven't read hardly anybody's poetry for ten years.
1: In his late work, yep. he turns to this incredible sense of, so his form almost disappears, mm. you know, he's very mm. skilled, but his form yep. almost disappears. There's a wonderful book called Roadside Dog, mm. and they're just little prose poems. In them is everything, and they're as brutal and as honest, but as joyful and yeah. observant, yeah. you know, and, and I I read them and I think, oh, he's moved past the scab, Yeah, he's moved yep. past form, he's moved past craft. Yep
0: we all have over time, I mean the literary historians kind of work poets out that we go through phases or periods or we, when we're younger we're more likely to be experimental, freestyle free form we want the power of the words on the page and as you get older it's like, well I might muck around with these words on this page and make more white space around them, I might look at these complicated forms of 17th century poetry writing and bring them into my work and then later on, this is when you're an older poet. This is, and again, a gleeful disregard because you can, you may as well, you know. If you've been stuck in some sort of heavily stylised form of poetry all your career, it's time to break out of that.
1: It is. Mm. What an amazing place to end. Will you read us another poem? I. So
0: yes, I'll flick through the book of poems quickly and find you something oh this one here this, one. this is called a uh, morning tea poem number seven tired and worn out I hate I snap and I growl before my morning coffee I will blunder and without cigarettes I, will despair. I'm curmudgeonly and I'm stubborn. I'm frugal and I'm mean. And I work hard to get to places and often nowhere at all. I endlessly loop the only life I've now got left and I waste my time, often in very innovative ways. I don't eat much and very irregularly And I lurch, but I'm hardly ever drunk. And without sadness, well, I don't know how to be happy. So I oscillate my moods now like an Auckland spring. And I'm deviously aware of the curves of both the past and of the future. Full stop.
1: What an incredible privilege it
0: has been to talk to you, David oh, Thank you, Anna. It's been for being good fun, this has. Let me say you're always
1: welcome imagine, in this shop. Imagine anytime. the
0: legal teams that have met over expensive lunches to get us here at 8.30 on a Saturday morning several months <laughs> in advance, you know.
1: It's incredible. It I've is, left eh? small children at home and David's organised Oh, David's oh I had to pack my car. So,
0: oh, Jesus, do I have to pack my car? I'm off to Hamilton for a show tonight. So I'm only here till four thirty, and then I'm in the carter Hamilton. Oh. Yeah, and then I'm at the regular Markets tomorrow. And we're not recording anymore. Are we? Oh, we are. Oh, Shut we are. Up. No, that's okay. Okay, that's well, yeah, I'm busy. That's what I'm trying a, to get.
1: He's a busy man, he is. He's a busy man. Now, if people want to find out more about you, they should go on Facebook. Yeah, I guess. Face... David Merritt.
0: Yeah, Mudbook will do. Facecrack will. It's the best entry level drug.
1: Or just Google you?
0: Yep, do all that. There's lots of YouTube stuff from live shows. There's recordings on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. There's, you know, archives of crap, as they say. (laughs) There's archives of crap, he snapped. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He's all over the place. I am
0: all over the place.
1: Well, this has been an amazing episode of Ears Wide Open, a literary podcast that is a production of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop. Mm. We're at 201 Ponsonby Road. We are. We've got a beautiful garden. Yep. We've got coffee, we've got books, we've got friendship and sunshine and sometimes rain. Come down and see us if you're in Auckland. We've got weather. We've got weather here. We have weather here in Ponsonby. It's not like Nelson. And if you're not in Auckland, you can look on our website and (sighs) order our My Book Bag service and have hand-picked books sent to you in beautiful brown paper packages. That's a good service. That's a great service. Do
0: that, do that, audience.